1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make Spycast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Sean Parnell, who's a retired U.S. Army infantry captain with the elite 10th Mountain Division and a veteran of 485 days of fierce fighting along the Afghan-Pakistan border. Since leaving the Army, Sean penned the New York Times best-selling book, Outlaw Platoon, which is the story of his platoon's crucible of combat in eastern Afghanistan. He's also quietly become one of America's most influential advocates for our military. He is a co-founder of the American Warrior Initiative, an organization that inspires people to give back to our nation's veterans, and a regular contributor to Fox News. And now he has written his first novel, Man of War, a thriller which weaves together an authentic tale of combat and intelligence operations. So welcome, Sean. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast.
2: Hey, it's an honor it's an honor to be on your show. I appreciate you all making time for me. So,
1: thank you. Well, we're happy to have you. And and we want to start Outlaw patoon has been out for a while, but you know, we may have some listeners who haven't read it yet. So, I want to talk a little bit about that to give people a little bit of a background into who you are. Um, you know, there's a lot of stories coming out of Afghanistan and Iraq and all the and everywhere else all the the, the never-ending wars we've been fighting since 9/11. And in many cases, you know, there's no one who's been over there that we can kind of blow off. as like, oh, where well, you really didn't see combat. But your, your unit got do- dropped into some of the fiercest fighting in Afghanistan along the AFPAC border. Can you talk a little bit about kind of that day-to-day struggle where you're constantly outnumbered by the enemy?
2: Uh, yeah, and, and, and it's a great point. You know, if you think back to when we were uh, supposed to go to Afghanistan, I got to my unit in 2005. Um, And back then we knew that we were supposed to go to Afghanistan, but that's really all we knew. Um, And if you remember back then, the eyes of this this nation were wholeheartedly focused on uh, the war in Iraq. And the debate raged over whether or not we should be there. And this was around the time where uh, they were talking about implementing the surge strategy um, and the idea of sending in even more troops. I mean, and so in large part, Afghanistan really felt like it was on the back burner for sure uh and to us we were preparing uh for combat but in i think in our in our heart of hearts we thought it was just a stability and support operation you know most of my guys had already been to combat before uh some of whom had went to afghanistan and you know in two in 2002 three and four hadn't really seen much action so um, we did everything that we thought we, we could do to prep for that eventuality of going to combat and going to war. If we, you know, ran 20, 30, 40 miles a week, we shot a lot of ammunition. Um, you know, we really did everything that we could to shoot, move, and communicate together as a team. Uh, but I gotta tell you, when we got there, we were thrown into the meat grinder, man, and we were not, um, I, I, I would say. We were about as prepared as you could be, but nothing really prepares you for combat, uh, and you don't really learn or figure out how you're going to react until that first bullet cracks by your head. And I will say we learned very quickly that we weren't fighting, uh, you know, farmers with pitchforks or this ragtag insurgency. Uh, We were fighting hardened infantry fighters, some of the best light infantry in the world, who had fought against the Russians in the 80s. And then they fought again in the Afghan Civil War in the 90s. And then they fought against us in the post-9-11 era. And they, you know, I was talking to some of the local elders uh, in Afghanistan, you know, because you do these, like, leadership engagements with the local elders and the towns and stuff. And and they were saying that, you know, the average foreign fighter in Afghanistan or or, or a Mujahideen fighter in Afghanistan, especially in RCE, Regional Command East, which is where we were, has 18 years combat experience on an average American private, and so I will tell you that it was a it was a very steep learning curve for us, um, you know, within the first six months of the deployment, and one that one that I think we ultimately, you know, we ultimately we paid for in blood.
1: Well, you weren't just fighting the Afghans. According to the book, you were repeatedly attacked by uniformed members of the Pakistani military.
2: Yeah, it's how oh, it's so true. You know, um, I remember two two engagements jump out um, jump out of my mind when you say that. Uh, one of which uh, we were down on an operation on the Afghan-Pakistan border at a place called Shkin, Firebase Shkin, which is right. I mean, like right in one of the worst areas of, of Regional Command East. And we were at at, at this like little outlying base, uh, like nestled right up against a Pakistani military checkpoint, a mill checkpoint and uh, we called it the Alamo and we went down there and we got attacked when we were there. We expected to be, t- we expected to come under contact because basically every time we left the wire in that area, somebody ends up shooting at us. Um, but we weren't ready for, for what we saw that day. And it was the enemy who was, you know, cozied up right against Pac-Mill fighters, you know, shooting mortars and rockets at us. And they pinned us down for probably, two three four hours that day uh we and we couldn't shoot back uh why because the pack mill were all around them and if we god forbid we missed one of their positions with our 50 caliber machine guns mark 19 mortars or if we called for a one or five artillery from the fobs if we missed you know the insurgent fighters that were attacking us we would have hit the pack mill and caused an international incident right but what's interesting about that is these insurgents knew that and they used it to their to their to their credit um and, and, and I realized after the mission was over um, that all of it happened on July 4th. So it sort of gives new meaning to fireworks, you know, but
1: um, well, it's amazing yeah, that you I realize. Mean, sorry. It's amazing that you realize that after the fact, I mean, I think of I being deployed in the 90s. You know, sometime I remember being in a tower in Bosnia and turning to my buddy in the tower going, today's Christmas. Is today the twenty-fifth? And it's kind of just when you're in the middle, you just don't realize, you know, after the fact you're like, oh, it's the fourth of July.
2: Yeah. It's so it's so true. I mean, you're so it's it's being in combat is is unlike doing anything else. You know, it's like or being deployed, right? Being deployed in general. It's like you are so focused on the mission from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, and then you dream about it when you sleep. But like he says that oftentimes everything else is just an outlier. So you when know, we get back to our base and I didn't even realize it was the 4th of July. So I'd gone back to my hooch and opened up my mail, which should, you know, just so happened to arrive that day. And I got a letter from my young cousin who was like six at the time and he had written, you know, you know, happy 4th of July and sent it weeks prior. And I didn't even realize it was that day until then. So yeah, it was kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah, you know, we were attacked or had attacks facilitated by the pac almost every single day. And, you know, as you know, the enemy that we fought, uh, or the Pac-Mill on the border are, are, you know, the Frontier Corps, right? So a derivative from the Northwest Frontier Corps, where when the British had occupied mm-hmm. Pakistan, uh, there would be one British officer with regular pac troops. Well, now the Frontier Corps is one Pac-Mill officer, With just the local insurgency a local militia and their loyalties shift with the desert sands, you know It's like, you know, they got family members that are in the Taliban and and they allow them freedom of maneuver across the border daily so it it was a monumental challenge fighting them uh, You know with you know international implications should we mess that should we have screwed anything up,
1: right? Now you'd mentioned that you paid for it in blood and I, and I think back to some of the world war ii island hopping campaigns like okinawa and iwo jima where some of the casualty rates were 50 60 70 but your platoon had an 85 percent casualty rate during this deployment yeah. and so so casualties for those of our listeners that aren't uh up on this terminology doesn't mean killed it means killed or wounded in this case 85 percent of the platoon was wounded in combat with what one single death during that time
2: yeah you know yeah one single kia and and it but to your point like i i credit the 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 equipment that we had you know like with helmet body armor up armored trucks although i would say we didn't have we didn't have up armored trucks until you know eight months into the deployment but you know that equipment saved lives but yeah i mean every single member of my platoon uh almost every single member was wounded Some were wounded twice. Some were wounded three times. Every single person that manned a machine gun in my platoon, like in a turret mounted machine gun on our, on our truck had taken a bullet to the head. Every single one. I mean, it is just, it was just unbelievable the hell we went through over there. And somehow, you know, everybody that had taken a bullet to the head somehow survived. Um, but yeah, we, we took our licks over there for sure. Um, but but so did the enemy. We always laid, we always did everything we we could. We never broke contact. We we fought back. Uh, we were tenacious, and we laid smack smackdown on them for sure.
1: Well, and your platoon was one of the most, and it still is, remains one of the most decorated army units since nine eleven.
2: Yes, yeah, you know, and it's just one of those things. Like, it, you know, combat is is terrible in a lot of ways, um, and 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 you know, one of the things you realize when you're there. Is the great length that men will go to to save one another, you know? And we had a lot of that in my platoon. A lot of guys laid everything on the uh, everything on the line for their brother in the trench or in the foxhole next to them, and you know, because of that, they were they were awarded for it. And so, yeah, we uh, I guess I guess being a highly decorated unit really is a blessing and a curse because we we saw just a ton of action. Um, but also, it, it, you know, I was blessed to have witnessed, you know, you know, some of the greatest triumphs of the human spirit that you could possibly imagine in life.
1: Well, you're, you're being somewhat modest about this, but you were certainly involved in that as well. Uh, in 20, 2006, you were wounded multiple times during a firefight. Um, like, uh, other than giving me kind of, it's cliched, but true, certainly the whole fighting for the brother next to you. What was it training? Was it instinct? Was it just the need to keep your unit alive? Was it leadership that kept you getting back up after you've been knocked down, whether you were shot or knocked unconscious or wounded? What kept you going during that time? Well, you
2: know, you always hear as a young leader, whether you're a non-commissioned officer or an officer, you you always hear this uttered over and over again when you're in training. You know, great leaders are supposed to inspire their troops, you know? I mean, every, every World War II memoir... There's some, you know, write up of how some leader inspired their troops. And because of that, they accomplished great things. But on that day, you know, June 10, 2006, what I call my live day, the day that I was wounded, but somehow allow, allowed to survive, you know, um, it was just like, we were outnumbered 10 to one. I had 24 guys on the ground. We got attacked by 250. The fighting was so close. It was close in. It was personal. It was almost hand to hand. We were blowing claymore mines. We were out of ammunition. I, I was about to give the command to fix bayonets, and then I'm on the hill thinking, oh, Jesus, the Army doesn't even issue us bayonets anymore. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, it was just everything that could have gone wrong that day went wrong. But here's here's what I learned I learned that, you know, when the rubber meets the road and you're about to be overrun, you know, great troops inspire their leaders. And for me, you know, I was wounded a couple times, as you said. Uh, that day but it's like I just kept getting up because I didn't I was so I was more afraid of failing my men than I was of dying you know and that's just the unvarnished truth because I'm looking around and I'm seeing my machine gunners get shot in the head and somehow get back on the gun I'm seeing guys get blown up by mortars and somehow stand back up and get in the fight and so how am I supposed to lay down and be evac when all these guys are sacrificing life and limb just to continue the mission. So uh, for me, it was just about not wanting to fail them.
1: Yeah. I mean, in moments like that, rank kind of goes out the window in many respects. I, I you know, I, you obviously want to be the leader, but at the same time, it's when you get into that life and death situation, it, it's just kind of working together as a team. And there's some time where the lowliest private, and because I was one at one time, I can say that uh, may actually be the person who inspires the highest member of the team. For sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, you look for inspiration and sometimes you you look for inspiration anywhere you can find it moments, you know, in heavy combat like that. And oftentimes it's the young private who's making like, you know, what $800 a month (laughs) tax free in combat that does something unbelievable um, you know, and, you know, there were many examples of that on that day in June 10, 2006, like one of which, like, like my medic, Jose Pantoja, not an American citizen, you know, treats 12 casualties, saves three lives, you know, four of which had arterial bleeding and he did it all after taking a bullet to the face and he gets a citizenship a month later. So like, these are, these are the types of stories and these are the types of people that I was surrounded with day after day over there
1: and, and watch this transition you're gonna love it and somehow you figure out a way in your downtime to envision an entire novel or at least a character <laughs> for a novel so I want to talk a little bit about man of war because your hero in this book you came up with these ideas and these concepts while you were in Afghanistan
2: yeah yeah for, yeah so like yeah no doubt about it like I, I just you know, for me, for a, for writing a hero, right? For coming up with the idea of Eric Steele, who is the hero in this book, he um, he embodies some of the greatest aspects of the warrior ethos and the service and sacrifice, selflessness that I witnessed on the battlefield every single day. You know, I feel like that. I first of all, I love thrillers in general. Um, I love guys like Brad Thor and Vince Flynn. They're the reason. They're the inspiration and the reason why I, I wrote this book. Really, as writers, but. But, like, what I felt like the genre really needed was a character that that sort of embodied all the greatest aspects of our character as Americans. You know, like, the people that ran into the flames, the save people that they didn't even know on 9-11, right? Um, those people are ultimately the, the men and women who inspired me to join the military. Um, or the service and sacrifice of my men on the battlefield. Like, I wanted to take all of that and cram it into a mainstream character um, that I could write about in books. And Eric Steele became that guy and Man of War became that story.
1: Yeah, this is where I'm gonna be a grumpy old young guy yelling at clouds, but it's extraordinary to me of the <laughs> the boomers out there and others who want to malign the millennials. And sure, there's some lazy in every generation, but this isn't this is a generation that has volunteered to fight a never-ending war that's gone on for 17 years and keeps volunteering again, and again, and again, to really kind of encapsulate that that ethos that you're referring to here.
2: Yes, yes. I mean, you, yes, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you're like, look, 0.4% of our country has served, you know, these wars during the longest period of war in our nation's history, only 0.4%, less than half of 1% of people have served this country. And then, they do it again and again and again. So, a very, very heavy burden is being carried by a, gosh, a profound few, right? And so, I grew up watching mainstream entertainment, like Back to the Future, Indiana Jones, loved Indiana Jones, one of my favorite uh, trilogy of movies. Well, now it's not a trilogy anymore, but.
1: Um, we won't, we won't, we don't acknowledge the last one. So, it's still a trilogy. Yeah, we too. won't.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's that, that's that's exactly why this is where I'm going with this. You're exactly right. But Indiana Jones character I watched as a kid punched Nazis in the face on a regular basis, and I said to myself as a kid, I want to be that guy someday. But all we get in mainstream entertainment today is a regurgitation of the stuff that we that already was. For example, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's like it's just it's just rebooting the same things over and over again because they already have an existing brand and. Hollywood, a lot of, in many ways, executives in Hollywood are risk-averse. They want to have an already existing audience. They want to make money. But at the same time, like, our generation, or our next generation of younger people in this country deserve mainstream heroes that they can aspire to be like, heroes that love America, believe this country's worth defending, believe it's worth dying for if need be, and heroes that are good, right? And so that that, you know, there's a lot of, like, Mainstream heroes in in this day and age who are dark, you know they they drink, they smoke, like they have a dark side, you know the dark Eric. hero with a gold a heart of gold type thing. But Eric Steele, his idiosyncrasy is that he's good, and oftentimes that gets him in trouble. Yeah. you know.
1: I mean, um, there there are heroes on the, in the newspaper every day, sadly, that people just kind of gloss over. I mean, I think two weeks ago there was a special forces soldier killed, and in his write up, he was on his twelfth deployment to Afghanistan. And it's like, wow. Right. That's someone who just kept volunteering to go back and go back and go back and do what was necessary. And that you're right. I think that, you know, there are, there are role models that are out there that in this case can be fictionalized, you know, for man of war, but that certainly are as heroic as anything that our generations of the past could to churn up.
2: Well, for sure, for sure. And, you know, you're, you're, you you mentioned something that is really important. They're kind of like glossed over, right? And 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 that's the truth. And so mainstream fiction is a way to get heroes like that in front of everybody, right? Even though they might be fictional, they're based on real people. But it's a way to reach a larger audience. And it's and, and one more point, And then I and I'll you know let you get back to, to the interview. But I, I was I was on a plane and a flight attendant. You know. Came up to me in the wake of that special forces soldier's death. I think he was a sergeant major or mm-hmm. something. And he, yeah, and he and she goes, you know, we lost, you know, we lost somebody. I lost somebody today. And I said, w- we you lost somebody? She said, like that sergeant major, you know, sergeant major so and so. He, we lost him. And I said, oh my gosh, were you related to him? And she said, no. But you know, my father was killed in the Vietnam War. And every single time, one, you know, soldier loses their life, It's just like it feels personal. Yeah. But like here, I, here I was thinking like, oh my gosh, like is she related to this person? But no, she says like, as an American, we, we. But how profound is that? People don't talk like that. We are losing some of the best and brightest in this country. But as you as you said, it's sort of like being glossed over. Like to to many Americans, and this is an indictment on them. I'm not trying to do that, but I'm just saying like. The war is like on the back burner in many ways, you
1: know? Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I mean, I think that it, it's very easy to say if you're in the military that we lost a brother or a sister. But as Americans, we have lost a brother or a sister. And, and, and it, maybe there is a civil-military divide where the average American who hasn't served, whether in combat or not, is in the military at all, doesn't feel the right to say I lost a brother today because I lost an American, you know, fighting for us in Afghanistan. But I think that's a shame. That's a shame that even, you know, even if you didn't serve, you should be able to say, you know what? A very important, courageous American or someone not American, right? Like you talked about your medic, someone who wants to be an American one day has given their lives for us.
2: For sure. Yeah, no, you're, you, I totally agree with you, you know, and and there is a, this is another reason why I wrote, or ultimately why I wrote Out Platoon, and then again with Man of War, because the people that enjoy freedom on a day-to-day basis in this country have never been further away than those that protect it. Yeah. So th- you're right. I mean, the gap between our warriors in this country and civilians has never been greater. And so, part of the way that part of the way I like to bridge that gap and, and bring me you know bring society closer to our veterans is through stories and books.
0: We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. all using the market-leading Sims, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire.
1: Well, let me ask you about that because this this book is not is dissimilar to outlaw platoon in that it's not a straight up fight. You know, it's not about a unit in combat. You have a lot of elements of the, the intelligence world in this. So you, you've obviously worked around members of the intelligence community in Afghanistan and other places. How much research did you do to get the nuts and bolts right when you were talking about CIA? Because you have a CIA director as a character in here. You have a lot of CIA operations in here. How much background work did you do to be able to write that correctly?
2: you know, um, what's, what's really interesting about it is we worked with the CIA every single day in Afghanistan. We had a singleton CIA operator at Shkin. His name, at least, well, his name was Chester. I'm pretty sure that wasn't his name, but that's what he told us. Um, so just, you know, working with those guys on a day-to-day basis, it's like you learn a lot, you know, even even though you're not learning about the specifics about what their mission is, you learn a lot about their culture, their acronyms, you know, Target packages, um, how they put them together, how they glean intelligence from the battlefield, how they exploit human sources. So what I did is I just took everything that I experienced in Afghanistan with guys like Chester and I put it in that book. And so one of the things that, that I learned when I was over there that just drives me crazy is that we we knew we knew where all the high value targets were in our area of operations in our AO. I'm like he lives in that compound right over the hill. We could go get we, we could literally get up, get in our trucks, and go get them right now. Oh, well, we can't. It's like, well, why can't we? Why can't we go get them? Are we here to win this war or not? And so, oh, well, we got to get approval. And so who do you got to get approval from? Some bureaucrat back in Washington or somebody back in Bagram? So two, three days later, we get the approval, we get the green light to go get somebody, and then the guy would either be tipped off, he'd be tipped off by somebody, and he'd already be gone. So, like, I, I, what I wanted to do with this book was create – a clandestine organization that was separate from the the, C, the CIA, right? Like, and I call that, that the Alpha program, right? It's a clandestine organization. There are nine singleton Alpha operators, each responsible for a different geographic area of the globe, and they all report directly to the president. Uh, you know, and when the president can't handle an issue with boots on the ground, combat soldiers, or with diplomacy, he sends in an Alpha to figure it out. So there's no red tape. There's no waiting around to go get a high-value target. If the president says go, and out the ro- rocks and rolls, you know. So, yeah. um, you know, in, ter- so in terms of the research that I did, in many ways, it's like I, I, I sort of lived it, right. you know. I worked with these guys. And so it, it just – it was unbelievably helpful with regards to me being able to put it on page,
1: well, one thing that, and I've read a lot of debut novels from usually from ex-military, ex-espionage guys, and and a trap. A lot of them fall into that you don't. So I was happy to see that was having a two-dimensional bad guy. I love how three-dimensional Nathaniel West is. I I, I really enjoyed the fact that you can kind of root for him a little bit, and you don't have just some yep. kind of blowfeld type bad guy that's you know a cookie cutter <laughs> Hollywood trope that actually. You know, I, I tend to root for that. I was almost on his side for most of the book, which I really enjoyed.
2: No, you do. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, so as, as a storyteller, part of, you know, part of your job is to create characters that are believable and that so when you step back from 30,000 feet and you say about a villain, you say, wait, okay, what's he trying to do? Oh my gosh, well, well oh my God, like, I would want to do that too. I'd be so mad, so like, you sort of agree you find yourself agreeing with their logic but not agreeing with how they try to rectify a situation right so like i love characters like that you know george r r martin does that so well in game of thrones you know um so you sort of want i sort of wanted to create west as a character who when you step back from thirty thousand feet and say okay what happened to this guy and why is he angry as a reader you totally get it right and, like, you find yourself wondering, like, what you would do in that situation, you know? Um, but you just disagree with the way that he handled it, I think, a little bit. The way we, the way that he goes about rectifying it.
1: Yeah, and I think you do a great job in, in making him kind of – we identify with him as a audience. I mean, he quotes Anchorman, you know, that – well, that escalated quickly. And, you know, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. a guy I could hang out with, and he's the bad guy. And I, and I really enjoyed that aspect of the book.
2: Well, you know, th- thank you. You know, I mean, Man of War is like a, uh, you know, it's a plot-driven book because these thrillers, that's what they are, right? They're they're real fast-moving, plot-driven books. But what I tried to do with this story was sort of create a care, uh, like a hybrid plot, char- a plot-driven, but also a character-driven story where, you know, each character is is different than one another, very different from one another, and when you do that, you you create like I think, anyway, you can create, if done properly, interesting character dynamic, And ultimately, that's what makes characters feel like real people, how they react to conflicts or how they react and talk to other characters.
1: I mean, character, characters are key if you're going to make this more than one book, perhaps, unless you plan on this being a one and done, because you really have the characters for a series.
2: I, you know, I just turned in book two. So there just, it is. Uh, Announce it here first. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I just turned in book two um, uh, to my editor last week. So, you know, the, the plan and hope is, is that Eric Steele will be a, a sort of Jack Reacher type franchise character.
1: Well, I mean, and, and I've said this multiple times, so the audience is going to kind of chuckle if they've been paying attention. It, it's rare. We usually get one of two kinds of authors, uh, of fiction either they are uh, formers of some sort former CIA or former military who can't write for their lives or they're writers <laughs> who get all the details wrong because they haven't really lived in the world and, and it's rare when you have someone who can do both and we've had a, we've had a handful recently of former agency types or IC types who have had the writing chops to make a realistic book readable. And I think that you're onto something here also. And I think that you have the kind of the military background, obviously from your experiences uh, in Afghanistan and other places, you certainly have the knowledge of this field. Uh, And it was eminently readable, uh, which I always cringe uh, as a knee jerk reaction. Whenever I get a galley from an ex so-and-so who's decided to write fiction. Cause I'm I'm like, Oh boy.
2: Oh my God. (laughs) Hey, look, I get it. I totally get what you mean. Um, you know, it takes practice, right? Because, you know, I mean, use Tom Clancy as an example, right? I read him as a kid. I love Tom Clancy. As he got older, his book started to feel a little bit like an encyclopedia. Yeah. You know, uh, of an in-depth technical description of a nuclear reactor on a submarine down to, you know, the set on the field manual. Guess what? I don't need, I kept finding myself being like, okay, bro, like, what's Jack Ryan up to right now? Like, can I get back to the character? So it's always a tightrope with stories like this, you know, because I've read them all, man. Like, that's my thing. I, I'm a voracious reader, and I try to take what I like and put that stuff in the, in the book and discard the stuff that I don't. So, like, I tried to put just enough technical detail in there, like, with regards to weaponry and tactics and things like that to satiate the appetite of somebody that, like, is looking for a Clancy-type book with a ton of technical detail. But ultimately, these stories, what they boil down to, and you learn this from the great Elmar Leonard, they're about conflict. All great stories are about conflict between people. And so, you know, keep the plot moving. Keep the conflict between people on the page. um, And what you do is you you create what I like to call convergence points in the story. Like, there are five main characters in Man of War. At some point, you know they're all going to meet. And, and so what that does is it creates a sense of intrigue and, and wonder in the reader. Like, what's going to happen when Eric Steele meets Nate West? Like, Nate West was his mentor. You know, Nate West trained Eric Steele. Is Eric Steele going to, like, have the chops to take Nate West down? Like, you find yourself wondering these things. as a re- and Look, this took – I mean, I'll, love, I'll just say, I love the tune came out in 2012, and it's 2018. So it took me a long, <laughs> long time. To get this right, man, like, I think I had to rewrite this book uh, four times, and, and I'll end with it. I'll end with it. Like, so the reason, another reason why I created the ops program is because, you know, I wasn't a clandestine service operations officer in the CIA. Like, as much as I like to think I know that culture because I work with them in combat, I don't know the intricacies of it. And I'm not, I respect their jobs too much to just, like, make random stuff up. Yeah. That's part of the reason why I created the Alpha Program. It's, it's it's a it's a clandestine organization with rules that I built. You know, like right. they train at Fort Bragg. They go to an indo- indoctrination program that's four phases long. Like nobody can tell me that that stuff is wrong because I built it. You know, <laughs> so it was sort of a safety. It was sort of a safety net for me. Well,
1: one day someone's going to write a superhero novel with uh, book editors as the superheroes because it, it's <laughs> it, talk about the the. Uh, the, the unknown heroes of this world, uh, people that can tell us that we're full of crap uh, and, you know, <laughs> assuming we're not going to punch them out, which I've threatened an editor once or twice with in the past. Um, the, one of the biggest one of the things that made you pop up on my radar in the first place, I mean, I had read Al, Al-, Al-, Al- Patoon a couple years ago, but what you pop back up is your role in American Warrior Initiative. And I could have spent the entire time talking about just this, uh, but I really I want to take a deep dive because it's so important what you guys are doing now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about give us the basics of what it is? Because we'll, we'll dive into some of the details in a second. Can you give us a broad stroke of what AWI does?
2: Well, what we do is we educate, inspire, and get back to our military. So there's an educational component for you know business professionals back here in the states that w- want to learn how to work with the military with excellence. They want to learn a little bit more about military culture and they want to learn a little bit more about what military veterans can bring to the fight. Should they hire them or bring them on board their team? That's really important to us. Um, But also um, we get back. And so we're a hundred percent organization and every donation that we get, every single penny goes to, you know, military veterans, their families are are first now now first responders. um, And what we do and what we've, what we've focused on or what we've come to focus on over the years is, is service dogs and getting service dogs into the hands of our nation's veteran, it's veterans as fast as humanly possible. And so it's really important um, because, you know, it, it's like some of these wait lists for these service dogs can be 10 years long, right. and like by the time a veteran finds himself at the top of the list, like they can't afford the dog anyway because sometimes they're like 25 grand. Right. You know, when you factor in all the training. And so we found this dire need, you know, because the needs of these service dogs, I mean it. And I mean it when I say it, it is dire. Um, and what, all we do is we have a look at these lists, we take veterans off the list, and we pay for the dog, you know. And that way we there's very little bureaucratic red tape. Once the decision's made, we can move. And it's just been, um, it's been a pretty amazing thing to be a part of. Yeah, I
1: mean, let's take a walk back because I, I think people out there may, some might understand what we're talking about, but others may like dogs. Like, what's the, what's the big deal? There's got to be bigger problems than that. But the level of PTSD among our veterans, I mean, your platoon, we already talked about the fact, only lost one member, KIA, but you've lost three since your deployment to suicide. So you've had three times as many deaths to veteran suicide as you had to enemy action
2: yeah no it's a great point and i think it's even more than that now i mean because you know my platoon went back uh to afghanistan uh lost five more guys and then you know i want to say from the guys that started the guys that were on outlaw platoon at the very beginning towards the the younger soldiers that came in at the end we probably had seven suicides now it's an epidemic it's a it's like you have like something between the numbers fallen from 22 so it's I think it's, it's hovering around 20 a day. 20 veterans every day take their own lives. But that's, a, that's, a, that's
1: a, a bullshit statistic, though, because that's only a best estimate on crap data. Oh, exactly. Right? You're because exactly they don't track right. veterans yep. as well as they should. So the number could be way higher than that.
2: It, no, you look, you're, you've got your finger on the pulse of this issue. You're exactly right. And so uh, realistically, the number is – and I'm just going to say it – realistically, the number is higher than that because – Exactly. There is really no methodology to to tracking the number of suicides. It's just an estimate, you know, and um, to me, this is like a tragedy of epic proportions because, as you said, like it's the selflessness of the same group of people who volunteer and continually go back, you know, time after time after time. And again, and as a nation, we are hemorrhaging people who embody loyalty, duty, respect, selflessness and all of these great, you know, these great aspects of, of, of being a human being in this world. And, and, and like, we got to do something to stem the tide of it. And so, you know, when I got back uh, from Afghanistan, I I was medically retired, you know? Um, And I found myself out in the civilian world, trying to figure out a way to make it work. And what I realized really quickly is like, you know, the military does a really good job at, at, you know, training us to shoot, move, and communicate together as a team. And then we go to combat, fight, bleed, and die together as a team. Um, and then you come home and, like, everybody goes their separate way. It's like it runs contrary to how we're trained. And so no wonder guys struggle with it. So when guys come home from war, you know, the unit splits up. You know, you got guys PCS into different duty assignments or retiring or being medically retired out of service and and all of a sudden you find yourself isolated and alone and in many cases guys start to feel like exiled in the very country that they served and 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 so they feel isolated and and so sometimes they take their own lives and it's a tragedy and so we have to do something about it and so that's that's why i got involved in in this charity that's why i founded this charity and do what i do every day
1: well the va i've had healthcare through the va now for almost 20 years and 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 patching you up and fixing bad knees and broken bones and screw ups as much maligned as the VA is they're pretty damn good at that but the mental health side right. the mental health side is is really lacking I mean you talked about we have numbers that are not great on actually successful suicides but if you there's no the numbers have to be astronomically higher on attempted suicides. You, you you quote a 2014 survey of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans half of them Said they knew another veteran who had attempted suicide. That's half of the veterans that were polled know somebody who had tried to kill themselves.
2: Yes, yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, so you're right. It's it's an issue issue that requires, to me, it's an issue that requires immediate attention. Um, and, and it's not, and you know, truthfully, it's not it's it's not getting enough, you know. And so, so the American Warrior Initiative, my charity. It's what's interesting about it is, is, you know, the educational component. So what we've, what we've been blessed to do is partner with a bunch of great corporations to help us offset the cost of our overhead, which is how we give a hundred percent of our donations to the causes. Right. But, you know, so the reason why that's important, is not just companies giving us money. I mean, like to help us, I mean, like it's not that it's just that, you know, corporations in this country, Especially the big ones that that make a living here in this country need to do more to help, you know. And, and they're starting to come around, um, but but we've been at war for 17 years now, and so guys that are coming home, guys and girls that are coming home from war, they're not coming home to you know ticker tape parades and recognition um, from everybody in their neighborhood. I mean, think about think about when when men and women come came home from World War II. They come into their neighborhood, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody in that neighborhood that was not affected directly by the war, son or daughter, you know, husband, wife, doesn't matter. You were in the fight. Everyone had skin in the game. It's not so today. So guys come home, they feel isolated. They they feel like, like I always say, exiles in their own country. And so um, the need to get involved and and help our veterans come home from war is, is a big one. It's a big one.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can you can trite the thank you for your service nonsense all you want, which you should certainly do. But how about actually doing something to thank people for yeah. their service? So let me ask you, how can people get involved? How can the average person do something about this?
2: Well, so if if you're looking to get involved with a charity, like go to go to my go to my charity's website, AmericanWarriorInitiative dot com. We have a a application system right on our website where. You know, the veteran doesn't even have to apply. If you know a veteran that you know is struggling, go on and apply for that person. You know, we'll need to have a look at their DD-214 to verify certain aspects of their service because, we, have, you know, you have to be honorably discharged um, and stuff like that. So we do, there's a, there is a vetting process, but it's a real simple one. And once we, once we select you, once we pick you, like, we can get a dog into the, into, into your hands pretty quickly, you know? Uh, but beyond that, if 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 you're looking to like if you know a veteran, if you're a family member that's a, that's a veteran friend, just like like you said, like it can't just stop. And thank you for your service, right? Like uh, it starts with a conversation. Like I want to hear what you have to say. Like I want to hear what you have to say. I'll never get, I'll never get it. I'll never understand it. I want to hear it, but I want to hear it. I, I feel like it's my duty to listen as a responsible American citizen. And I can take it, you know. You're not going to hurt me or scare me with your experience. I'm tough enough to handle it. And so, um, to me, you know, veteran healing starts with a conversation.
1: So, if there's somebody out there who's like literally filled up their bathtub with hundred-dollar bills and is swimming through it, and they just want (laughs) to figure out a way to get rid of a lot of their money, is there anything they can do with that? I mean, is you talk about working with with corporations, but is there a way to donate directly to AWI? Yeah.
2: Yeah, you can go on the website. And you can click the donate now button, and, and and I'm glad that you brought that up because we're one of the only charities in the country that can earmark your donations. So if you say like, I want every nickel of this bathtub full of money to go to Service Dogs, and I want to know I want them to go to Service Dogs all along the Eastern Seaboard, we can do that. You can leave a comment in the comment section. will earmark it. We'll make sure that those funds go directly where you want them to go.
1: And that's for little donations too, right? You'll kind of group them all together. For sure. to, Yep.
2: Yep, for sure. I mean, you know, we take all donations and like I said, every we guarantee you that every single penny that you give us goes to a cause. And so, you know, any and all donations are welcome. That's how we that's how we are able to do what we do. So, very very appreciated.
1: So the say one more time americanwarriorinitiative.com is the website.
2: Yeah, AmericanWarriorInitiative.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter.
1: So Sean Parnell is the author of Outlaw Platoon, which came out six years ago. It is well worth a read, and now the author of the new novel Man of War, which is already out. I think it came out a couple weeks ago. Um, And as I said, uh, it's the happy place that we find where someone that knows what the hell they're talking about but can still write. Uh, So certainly go check that out as well. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast.
2: Anytime you want me back, I'm there. Thanks for making time for me.
1: We'll have you back for the second book.
2: All right, sounds good. Thanks.